0: This is the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of May the 3rd, 2021. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers and I'm coming to you here from Phoenix, Arizona. We're going to be talking to you about some developments that have taken place over the past week. And it's been a relatively quiet week from a tax standpoint, aside from the actual release of a fact sheet on the Proposals that have come from the White House. Again, reminder as we talked about last week, proposals are just that. And I would strongly suggest you maybe understand what's being talked about, keep it in the back of your mind, but be a little careful about any actions at this point because things can and do most often change between the time a law is first proposed and the time it gets enacted if it does get enacted. So, need to be a little bit cautious about going off too quickly down some of the paths that I've seen some people suggest get started right now. I could turn out very, very badly if it turns out that the future does not come the way that you think it's going to come, and that can be bad. But we will talk a little bit this week about the fact that the IRS confirmed how community property states married filing, separate filing status, and the 2020 unemployment exclusions work. And it's generally going to be good news for married couples in community property states who have adjusted gross income above $150,000 and below $300,000. Maybe bad news for couples in such states if their total adjusted gross income exceeds that level. But we'll talk about why the unique factors of community property and why it's a little different in the nine community property states than it would be in other states. But in any state, there is still some consideration about married filing separate, potentially allowing an exclusion for unemployment compensation that would not be available if you file a joint return. Secondly, we'll look at the United States tax court case. And in this case, the tax court's kind of looking at rents that were paid by a C corporation, to shareholders and concluded that those rents were unreasonably high, the case is interesting in A, reminding us that unreasonable compensation issues relate not only to the question about payments of compensation, this is, I should say, unreasonable payment issues to related parties, but relate to any type of payment where a tax advantage might have been gained by having it structured as one way rather than another. Finally, we'll look at a White House fact sheet that was released on the proposed tax law changes. While, again, I consider it to be way too early to take steps based on these proposed changes, I think it is useful to understand what they're talking about. So we at least have some idea about what's on the table, even if, very importantly, we have no idea what the specific details of implementation would be for any of these and even if we did have such text that could tell us about specific implementation, there's a really big chance that that will change over time. In fact, kind of like the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, there's a very decent chance that even if one house passes the bill, that we will find a very different bill ultimately gets enacted. For instance, remind everybody that in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, as first passed by the U.S. House, there was no Section 199 Cap A deduction. There was an entirely different, radically different regime that was going to give benefits to pass through businesses, and we dropped that regime in favor of what we have now. And if you had gone down the path of planning for the regime that uh, was in the bill that Kevin Brady uh, got through Ways and Means and through the House, you would have ended up with a not necessarily such a great result compared to if you had waited for the final bill to clear the U.S. Senate. Well, Let's get started, though, and let's talk first about that community property issue. And this was an addition the IRS made on April the 29th to their 2020 Unemployment Compensation Exclusion FAQ. I need not remind you that I hate FAQs on the IRS website. I understand why they do them, but I also understand the problems they present, and this is one of such problems. But this is a section under Topic A, Eligibility. The IRS modified the webpage on April the 29th, and essentially, as before, unless you go look at that page regularly— you probably won't notice or ever be aware it's been changed. Notice that's an important thing to remember if you are relying on anything on an IRS FAQ. And in some cases, we have no real choice because that's the only place you're going to find anything specific about the IRS position. You certainly have a duty to inform your client of what's on that web page because obviously. Agents, we should assume, are going to follow that and point to the fact you should have known. We told you this was our position. How did you not know? And we think your position is lousy, and we're going to disallow. Now, I love getting into theoretical conversations with people. We talk about that on Tax Twitter, or we talk about it with you know various other parties. But the reality is that most clients are not going to litigate. Most clients, in fact, if you look at the cost of doing an appeal... Versus the tax involved in many cases, even going to appeals is cost prohibitive, and potentially even just having the issue come up and getting stuck with an exam is going to be more costly than the benefit involved. So, the practical approach in many cases for the clients is going to be to just roll over and play dead, regardless of what the support may be for the IRS position. The argument being that they simply want to avoid problems with the IRS. And that is a reasonable position for a client to take. It's not reasonable for us to assume that is the client's position, but it's certainly an answer a client may give. And quite often when you present these to clients, I've found that they are going to avoid the IRS issue, especially when they ask you how much we're talking about. And if you say it's X dollars, they're going to quickly do that math in their head and decide that it's just not worth it because one thing clients tend to realize that we often ignore is the fact that a they're probably going to have to pay us to do any work in that area they do notice that but B also they are considering the uh, the impact and stress on their own life and they would just as soon not go through the process of the exam so like it or not a lot of clients are going to dodge but if you're doing an FAQ and you're going to rely on an FAQ, you really need to print it out. Print it to into a PDF with the date it was printed, which your, stat, your software generally does. when If you have the headers set up like as the defaults are in most browsers, it will give you the date it was printed and point out what you relied upon that theoretically, again, the IRS could change their mind. They could try to take a contrary litigating position. That's going to be a PR nightmare for them. I'll tell you that. So, A, I don't think they'll do it. But, B, even if they do, this definitely gives you protection against any penalties as you follow their outline. So, let's talk about what this FAQ told us. And this FAQ is not surprising if you understand community property. And uh, most of us in community property states had believed that, you know, there was a little question the service would have to agree with this position. But there was that little problem that the service hadn't actually said anything on this yet, and as I told you, we have clients that are risk averse, so I would have to mention to clients that yes, we haven't heard from the IRS on this issue. But the catch was, we start out with the fact that when Congress passed the unemployment exclusion in the year, in, basically they passed the, and this was an ARP. I got remember which one it's in, in the American Rescue Plan Act. They, for whatever reason, have a single cliff cutoff of $150,000 adjusted, basically modified adjusted gross income. They did not change that whether you are filing single, head of household, married filing joint, or most appropriately for today, married filing separate. Well, as you might expect, we would expect to have a lower modified AGI on each of the taxpayers' returns for married filing separate. Now, I understand it doesn't have to be because there are some benefits one loses with married separate, but normally we'll at least expect both to drop in that case. And obviously, if they both drop below 150, but they're above 150 in total. Well, we could go from having no unemployment allowed as a deduction to having $20,800 of unemployment excluded from income. So it could be significant. So we'll start with that fact one, which applies all across the country. Now let's go to fact two and let's talk about the unique situation in community property states. And I say that because the IRS publication on community property is very clear on this. But I regularly see IRS agents who don't understand it until you throw back their own pub at them and throw back the sections in the code that talk about when we ignore community property and say, how does any of that make sense if you're telling me I do it this way? It's like, none of that makes sense. The reason it's there is because, guess what? Your pub's right. States control property ownership. States control Who owns any item of income? State property law does. We are in a federal system. This goes to the structure of the United States. One could have a totally centralized government system where the central government controls all of these aspects. But we have this little strange option of a federal system which actually isn't that strange. We have other federal systems. Other countries run under federal systems. The European Union is clearly was adopted as a federal system that is a little more poised toward the rights of the federal, of the, you know, the centralized government of the EU as a very more limited role than does the U.S. federal government. U.S. federal government has a more limited role than you would have in a truly centralized government system. But what it means here is, under the U.S. system, we have decided that certain items are, you know, the purview of the federal government. Remember, the U.S. Constitution was adopted in reaction to what was considered to be the fiasco of the Articles of Confederation, where the centralized government proved to be too weak and, you know, things just didn't work. Individual states were setting up barriers to having, you know, goods flow between them to sell between the states. They were all trying to negotiate some of their own deals overseas. It's kind of a mess. So we gave a bit more power to the central government in the U.S. Constitution. But one of the things we left at the state level were the basics of certain types of law, like property law. That means every state has its own unique set of laws determining property. And one of the more significant parts of that law that comes into play here is marital property. What are the rights of the spouses to property that the couple has while in marriage? And in nine states, Arizona, California, Idaho, Louisiana, Nevada, Texas, Washington, uh, Wisconsin, in those states there. Hopefully I got that. I think I got, and I got, who am I missing in the set there? Always kind of funny when I get into these sets. But I start getting into this. Oh, New Mexico. Yep, I forgot to put New Mexico on the list. Ah, terrible. Anyway, in those nine states, you're going to find that we have rules that are derived, aside from Louisiana, from community property law that came from Spain mainly, but then via Mexico. Right. So we have property laws based on community property. Also, France works on community property, but on a somewhat different version. So that does mean when you get to Louisiana, the rules are a little different, but fundamental part of it, and true in all nine states, is that generally, earned income when when people are married is considered to be earned for the community. That is, the married couple, once you say, I do, We have formed a community and each has a responsibility to provide for the community and the benefits from their services. Anything they earn from their services goes to the community, not to them. In the other states and the District of Columbia, generally we look at if you perform the services, you know, you're married, you perform the services, that still is your income. And that's still yours to do with as you wish. Now, what happens is if we in death and divorce is where these tend to become most significant is in non-community property states. We do provide certain rights in divorce to property that was accumulated. It's not the pure division we see in community property states, but we have other rights. And we also have certain rights at death. That can allow spa- spouses to claim a share, even if their spouse wrote them out of the will. There are ways to get a share in community property states. Works a little differently conceptually in deal states. We're looking at the fact that everything in the marriage is 50/50. Now, because of that, that means when you do a return for a taxpayer who resides in a community property state, earned income is defined to be half and half, and generally. And by that, I mean, really, it goes to community in which each has an undivided one-half interest. That's technically how it tends to work. There are some differences among the states on how it really works. But also, in most states, there's an assumption that other income, unless you can clearly demonstrate it qualifies as separate, is also presumed to be community. And over time, since most married couples don't take the steps necessary to preserve The separation of such property and such income, unless they have a prenuptial agreement in place, which can override in those states community property, uh, it tends to be that everything ends up split. So a married filing joint return, traditional married filing joint return community property state, when you go to file it 90 times out of 100, you're going to end up with splitting the income and deductions evenly among the two spouses. And it doesn't matter. Even if only one spouse has W-2 income, those wages get divided between the two spouses' returns. It doesn't matter that, you know, I don't care how the account for the most part is titled. There'll be a presumption it often brings it back in. There are ways to change it, but it gets messy. That's kind of going down the rabbit hole. We don't want to go down. It's more of a legal issue than accounting issue. But we do have that fundamental division. Now, let's combine that with the exclusion and things get interesting. So, what it looks like I could do I have a married couple, they have adjusted gross income of $290,000. And let's say, using the way you might view it in, let's say, the state of Ohio or Colorado, let's say that that $290,000 consists of $250,000 of earned income, all earned by one spouse and $40,000 of earned income. Or I should say, have unearned income, you know, capital gains, dividends, interest, etc. Now that couple is not going to qualify if they do married filing joint for unemployment exclusion. Let's say that that person owned two hundred and fifty, still qualified for unemployment at some point during twenty twenty. However, in a community property state, they wouldn't qualify married joint because, you know, two hundred and ninety is more than one hundred and fifty. And let's say even may, maybe all of the unearned income was the property of the spouse that did not have W-2 wages. That spouse came in the marriage, you know, with a lot of accumulated wealth. So they're, you know, they're getting their 40000 a year off that. And our other spouse comes in with earned income. You know, that, that's where they're getting it. So two fifty to them. Well, you know, even if we do separate returns, the 250 is going to the spouse that had the unemployment, so we're still not going to get it. And if you're in a property state, though, let's assume that the 250 and the 40 both qualify as community income under the rules of the state, or at least quasi-community because we can't really split it up nicely. And ignore the fact about how we would get there and why the 40 might be separate. But in some states, even even though the 40 might come from separate property. There definitely are states where that'll still be considered community income by default. Uh, not my home state of Arizona, but there are states that will treat it that way. But let's assume it's all community, regardless of the state. Now I divide down, I get AGI of 145 for each spouse. That means that I can take that whole, and let's say the unemployment the person received was not just 100. But actually, they got 20800 They qualified for double the limit. Again, married filing joint, no exclusion. Married filing separate. Each spouse reports 10400 of the unemployment compensation, despite the fact that only one spouse actually received it. And they each get to exclude it on their return. The IRS confirmed this week that that's how it works. So, again, in a community property state, you can make that go. Now, remember, you cannot change from married filing joint to married filing separate after you have filed the original return for the year in question. Now, you can do that via a superseding return. Now we get to the interesting mess. If a taxpayer had already filed a return before April 15th, They filed married joint, perhaps filed before we found out we were going to get this unemployment exclusion back when it wasn't part of ARPA, when it was just being discussed by people who weren't really in the tax arena. And we just thought, yeah, my client just wants their refund. They're going to file now. They're not going to wait to see if this clears. And secondly, you know, so and they're over the limit. And Congress couldn't be so stupid, you'd assume, as to put in an exclusion here that would not have a lower rate for married separate well they did it now the catch is we could go back and supersede that return all the way through the original filing date now you cannot change from married separate to married joint from married joint to married separate after the return has been filed for the year but the superseding rule should allow you to move back the other way the one thing not totally clear Does the extension to May 15th or May 17th under 7508 Cap A, does that serve to actually give us until May 17th to revise that return that may have been filed back in February? Not clear. I suppose you can try. And, you know, I think it should. But again, doesn't appear absolutely clear to me. Obviously, once we go past May 17th, that February return can no longer be changed. Now, continuing on, if you file an extension right now, in theory, you should be able to supersede the returns all the way through the October 15 date. But consider this, a number of people I know who are in community property states have clients sitting in those states, or simply they're in those states, so that's where they're getting it. Uh, they've seen some significant savings from people by being able to do this obviously for married, for this to work you're looking at joint income of 300 or less because once we get above 300 this could work against us if you had a client let's say where one one of these spouses had earnings of 200,000 of let's say 300,000 the other spouses had, had earnings of 100,000 and you were in Ohio and the hundred thousand spouse, the one that got the unemployment, they could still do marriage separate to make this work. They might have rate issues that could cause us some problems. But in a mar in a community property state, unless that couple had a prenup, the hundred thousand you can't file separately for the person with hundred thousand of income because they're required to pick up the half of the income. From the other spouse and half of their income and half their unemployment is going to shoot over to the other spouse as well. And oh, by the way, it's not elective on the 1040. I also see that misdone a lot in community property states where and clients want to do it, too. Well, we want to file a separate return. I'll report my income and my spouse will report their income. They'll do it separately because we keep separate bank accounts. It's like, thank you. Tough luck, guys. You move into a community property state. That's not how it works here. And man, you're going to be in for a real shock. You two ever get divorced or one of you dies someday, which, you know, reality is one of those two is going to happen. Years ago, attorney pointed out teaching a course I was sitting in years ago. She pointed out every marriage ends in death or divorce. And that's where this thing gets irrelevant. So interesting rule. Next up, let's talk about the case of Plentywood Drug, Inc. versus Commissioner, TC Memo 2021-45. This one came out April the 26th. Now, this looks at the whole question about paying amounts to related parties. And this is a C corporation. It wouldn't be terribly relevant if it was an S corporation or a partnership. But it's a C corporation, ran a drugstore in a very small town, Plentywood, in Montana. Okay. Uh total population 1,700. No, well, I shouldn't say very small. I, I know of towns way smaller than that in Arizona and in other places, but still 1,700 is hardly a large metropo- metropolis, shall we say. So we have it there in a town in Montana. This C Corporation owned the drugstore and it leased the drugstore from the shareholders of the C-Corp that had acquired the building a while back. And that's a fairly normal structure as well. Now, in this case, the IRS said, we think the rent's wrong. The rent was set by the shareholders at the beginning of each year. It was kind of just set orally. They set it up. They started paying it. You can tell that that's what they were actually doing because it would be the, you know, a rateable payment each month. And what they ended up paying for rents in those years, well, it varied a bit. In fact, what happened was the first year the exam was looking at 2011, it was $83,584 of rent. The next year, $192,000. And that was true for the third year as well. This was 2011 to 2013. Now, the IRS said, hey, guys, those rents, especially the last two, are way too high for this drugstore in this tiny town in Montana. Now, it turned out to be a little bit interesting here because, of course, now the question becomes, and what's the the consequence here? If the rent is excessive, only the reasonable rent, because that's going to be presumed as the amount that really represents the rent, is going to be allowed as a deduction on the C-Corps tax return the rest of the payment will be treated as a dividend to the shareholder. Now, that's probably from the shareholder standpoint, probably no worse and probably a little better because it's going to be a qualified dividend almost for certain. But the C-Corporation, which is under exam here, is going to lose any deduction because the C-Corp will not get a deduction for amounts paid as dividends to shareholders. So that's the consequence if it's too high. It got complicated here because usually what we do is if we wanted to figure out if, if the rent that let's say my accounting firm is paying for rent to the shareholders of the accounting firm. What we do is we would take a look here in here in Phoenix where my firm is sitting here in this area of town. We could probably find a whole series of comparable office spaces In fact, I can think of a number of them within easy walking distance of my office. And we could then take a look at those, see what are they charging per square foot for similar types of leases and compare that to what we're, you know, what our corporation is being charged by the related party owners, you know, to lease the building. And if that rent is higher than it should be, then we're going to lose part of that deduction. It'd be a very simple rule for comparables. Well, here we have a couple of problems with comparables. First thing is, in in Montana, most information about real estate sales and other transactions is not part of the public record, unlike what it is in other locations. So there's problem A. It's very difficult. It's not as easy as just kind of going down to a county recorder's office or going down to a county assessor's office or various other places where you might find, usually, a recorder's office, where you're going to find this information recorded and available to the public. But you have to be able to get it through other sources. And then on top of that, they found that, especially in a very small town sitting here in Montana, that they weren't necessarily, people didn't like to talk about these kind of financial things with strangers. Certainly not strangers from out of town. And therefore, there was very, very little to know information available about comparable leases. So now the fun part becomes, okay, how exactly do we tell if the rent is reasonable under these criteria? Well, obviously, each each person, each, you know, each side had their own expert. The expert for the IRS looked around and said, well, comparables have to be in the same area. So he, you know, he concentrated on what he could discover about rents that had been paid in Plentywood. And the information he was able to get was first, uh, two places that he could get it from the other, the other side because the U.S. government leased a building that was a post office and there was also government-subsidized multifamily residential buildings where rental amounts were also publicized, right? It was the government, who's one of the parties to the lease, that's publicizing it because, of course, for the government, that's being opened so people can make sure there's not something going on untoward. So, in that case, we, we know what those rents are. He also found that there was made available, not sure why, but it was, there was a non-governmental lease he found for a 625-square-foot commercial real estate real property. Now, the drugstore in question was about, as I recall, you know, way larger than that. 625-square-foot Six, you know, is really tiny. I mean, most apartments, most studio apartments are going to be pushing, if not exceeding that. So we're talking about a very, very, very tiny retail space. And I'm trying to even think of anything that small, you know, retail space around my area. And I really have trouble figuring out one that would exist. Maybe if you remember the old days, remember those... uh, what, what were the photo booths called? Not photo booths, but you know those little drive-up things you could take your film to, and they, they would develop them for you. That may be, you know, those would be smaller than that, but otherwise, I can't think of many things. Even some of those super small hamburger stands uh, are bigger than 625 feet, square feet. So a very, very tiny re- retail, commercial retail property. Okay. Now, the other, the taxpayer's expert said, well look, here's the problem. There just aren't comparables. And you know, and those three are obviously, you know, they're they're not really comparable to my drug to the drugstore. You know, so I don't think we just want to look inside Plentywood. We're gonna go consider rentals in a broader area. And the closest place that he could find information where it was reasonably easy to get information was going to be in Williston, North Dakota, which is about an hour's drive away from Plentywood. Um, and obviously in North Dakota. A couple, of course, got a couple advantages. First thing is Williston is Williston's hardly what I think those of us sitting at a place like Phoenix or Houston or even Boise are going to consider to be a large town. You know, we're going to be seeing it again. Boise is the hundredth largest town in the U.S., if I remember my stats from before. Um, you know, so we're looking at for a lot of us are sitting in places that, yeah, you know, we're hardly going to consider, consider Williston to be a huge town. But compared to Plentywood, this thing looks like New York City. OK, so it's really it's bigger. It's got more information and it's in North Dakota. So this information is not considered to be confidential. In essence, it is State open information, sales prices of real estate are considered to be public information. I can find out a lot more details. So he got a number of comparables for, sim- for types of retail operations and retail space. But most of his were in Williston. Williston is also in the middle of the part of North Dakota. That is, you know, really had a big economic boom at the time that was coming from the oil industry. That particular area doesn't necessarily. The court pointed out wasn't they didn't prove at, at the quay, at the trial that that boom had influenced Plentywood. They suggested it had, but they gave no evidence of how it had affected Plentywood and what was going on. The judge was a little skeptical because it didn't look like the population had boomed or you know anything of that sort that would have driven a, Unlike Williston, <laughs> so it, look, it looked like it wasn't quite the same thing. But nevertheless, you know, they went down that path. Now, the judge didn't like either one of these options. He said he, said he liked the party's objections to each other's experts far more than he liked the actual e- expert opinion in either case. Is fundamentally how it worked. But they had both chosen one property that was on, on their list, that U.S. Post Office in Plentywood, because it was a just like the drugstore, a relatively larger building, right? You know, you're not going to have a post office, you know, in a very, very tiny facility. It was a larger building, not the same size. The drugstore was still bigger, but it wasn't 600 square feet. And, you know, it was open to the public, used to the public. They came in. So they, they said, well, that's clearly the closest thing we've got. It's in the actual location, and, you know, it's similar in use. Now, they talked about some of the adjustments you'd make because normally you would adjust for some differences. But the court concluded that while you might adjust that rent downward for a couple of other issues that related, it was a bit smaller, you know, so, and other issues for square foot, there there were some other reasons why you might adjust, I should say, yeah, you know, you'd adjust it downward when you went and applied it to the drugstore. They said, but the flip side of it is you also, you know, might adjust it upwards. other issues they said look yes you know it it might be less valuable because of a b came up with various reasons but they said but you could get a long-term lease from the federal government and they they they're much you know they are very 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 likely to pay uh as landlords can tell you that's not always true of tenants uh so can i get a long-term lease from a tenant who is absolutely certain to pay i'm likely to get that at a lower price So they said, considering that, we consider the offsets to balance out. And so they used that for the square footage for the retail floor. They worked on another method to come up with some valuation for storage space that existed in the basement that was used by the drugstore. Again, not really comparable to the post office for most purposes, but it was still useful. And at the end of the day, they determined there was about a $20,000 difference. So. In essence, at that point in time, what the court decided was they're going to use the post office, they reduced the rent slightly. The thing to take away from this, I think there are a couple of takeaways here. It is very specialized. We probably don't have many C corporation issues, but a couple of things. Remember, related party payments where a tax advantage is granted are always open to review. Second, I would say, um, be careful when you're deciding what's reasonable to pay. In this case, they convinced themselves that this rent was reasonable. And part of the way they convinced themselves was, well, obviously, you know, we've got this boom in North Dakota and that justifies higher rents in Plentywood. That might make sense to you if you live in Plentywood. It might seem obvious to you if you do that. But if you are challenged by the service, you need to be able to prove those assumptions and the court mentioned specifically that wasn't proven here. If they'd been able to prove that assumption, I have a feeling they could have used the Williston Comparables. And if they'd used Williston Comparables, they probably would have gotten a higher rent. So this issue might have gone away. So be aware that if challenged, you need to be able to prove your assumptions. Everybody knows X is not going to go far in an exam like this especially when it's an everybody knows in a town of 1700, that's not likely that that the judge at town, which is, by the way, not very helpful to strangers and doesn't really have a, you know, let's say, especially not strangers working for the big U.S. government back in the East Coast. I, you know, in essence, the court is going to be a little skeptical about things everybody knows, unless we can document that with documented facts. To be totally honest, one of the problems you're going to have there is the same thing that made it tough to get comparables in Plentywood is going to be difficult to make it difficult to prove Plentywood really, you know, got that much benefit from the oil boom. Because again, if you're keeping quiet, not telling people about financial stuff, it's really tough to prove that in reality, the financial stuff is so much better. Okay. Also realize, you know, be aware of what's going on, too. You know, what exactly is happening? The IRS is going to question these types of transactions. Probably wouldn't have hurt to have been consistent every year. I do think the big jump in rent probably got the agent's attention. How would you go from 80 grand to 192 if you're charging market rents? Um, I was more interested that the service didn't think to maybe, hey, what's going on the other way? You know, what, what's happening the other side? Was there something weird there? Um, You know, we could have all kinds of odd things there. It'd be one of those things, especially if the ownership was not identical. Then you could see the service trying to figure out if there's a hidden payment involved in that big change. So, again, just be aware that anything with a related party is open to questions about valuation. And if a tax benefit's granted, don't be surprised if an agent wants to look into those areas okay finally i decided i would go through this week's fact sheet the fact sheet and i know i told you last week i'm not really thrilled about going through proposed legislation i i I think you have to be very very careful when doing it but the problem this week was nothing much else was happening everybody was concentrating on this this was the entire tax discussion wherever you looked and you know so Figured I might as well do it. And it is interesting. I still say, like I did a week ago, it's something you need to know about, but it's not something you want to act. So, a couple of warnings before we get started to remind you of what I told you last week. Remember, we have this, we have this document. This fit these 15 pages are not proposed legislative text. They are at best an interpretation if there is such text. And even if there isn't, and most likely there isn't such text, so now they're kind of an outline of how to write this thing. And the problem is, in order to actually come up with some action point, in many of these areas, you've got to interpret what those words on 15 pages mean because the life life is more complicated than this, and the actual fact patterns are different. And it's very, very dangerous. One of the key ways you get in trouble In tax work is when you try to interpret a document that in and of itself is only at best an interpretation, or even worse in this case, a kind of pointer to have vaguely write it like this, provision. You know, you do not want to be doing that type of analysis until we have actual law in front of us, and we're far from that. And it's likely, even if your interpretation of this compared to how whoever inside the administration would be writing the law is going to think about how to write it, there's a decent chance that when we go through the legislative process, that this legislation would be changed if it becomes law. That's the other problem, it may never become law. So, and I base that on my experience going back all the way to the Tax Reform Act of 1986, actually going back even before that, uh, I wasn't in practice when ERDA was passed in 1981, but I was in practice for every major bill after the Economic Recovery Tax Act of 1981. That includes the Tax Reform Act of 1986, right? That includes, obviously, last year's Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It includes EGTRA uh, from George H.W. Bush, Uh, The Revenue Reconciliation Act under Bill Clinton in the 90s. And what I can tell you about every one of those bills was major changes occurred from when it was first talked about until it was actually passed. So even the bills that have become law have always had, now some things didn't change and some things changed radically. Just like with the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, as I noted, we went from a very different way of benefiting pass throughs that was in the House passed bill. To a to the method we have now, to 109 cap A, and remember, under the House-passed bill, S corporation income was going to effectively be put on a par with income from an LLC for purposes of self-employment tax. For a partnership, I should say, purposes of self-employment tax, meaning that we were going to look at investment in capital versus services. And it wouldn't really matter which one of the two you did. Now, if you thought that was going to become law, you may have made decisions. You might have done things that were very regrettable shortly thereafter when that whole thing disappeared from the law, from the proposed law. So let's talk about what was in this document, though. It's a 15-page document. Most of the tax provisions are on the last three pages. There are some other details buried through in, but the last three pages have most of it. And most of the tax increase provisions are on the last two pages. So I'll warn you if you go get it, go to the end of it because that's where things are. The first thing that got all the headlines was the top rate would return to 39.6%. And I want to phrase it that way because I want to remind you when I say it returned to 39.6, we were there basically uh, four years ago, you know, In 2017, you know, 39.6 was the top individual rate. We've had the 18, 19, and 20 returns now that had the top rate at 37. So that's a 2.6 percent increase. We have been below that and above that multiple times ever since the Revenue Reconciliation Act under Bill Clinton, that was enacted in 1994. That put it to 39.6. It has a couple of times dropped below that level. It has then risen back to that level. But 39.6 has been there before. This was probably one of the most predictable things you would expect to be proposed when control shifted from the, Demo- from the Republicans to the Democrats. And... Later on, if this happens and control shifts from the Democrats back to the Republicans, I can tell you that I expect thirty nine point six to be to go away and us to go back down to thirty seven or some other rate. It's just that that's a given. That one should have surprised no one being in the proposal. Okay. Now, what's a little bit bigger, though, was the proposed capital gain changes, taxation of capital gains. First. There will be no special lower capital gains rate once, and the term here used is household income, ends up being above $1 million. Now, the problem is we have no real idea how we are going to compute this household income. And I think you need to be aware before you get started, that's probably a big caveat. Are we going to have different levels for single and head of household, married filing joint, Married filing separate. I suspect we won't do the unemployment bit again. We'll see, but I have a feeling that's probably not where we're going. That that one had an unusual source of how it came in. and I think that had a lot to do with the fact that the group that wrote it was totally blind to the concept of the fact you should have a separate married separate level that's different than married joint. And by the time we got to wanting having to have it in the law, it just became we had to put it in there to get the 50 votes. So... It got in the law without change. So be aware of that. So that's a big one. You know, it would change 39.6 from 20. You still would have the net most income tax apply. So that 3.8% additional tax would probably apply. So you'd be looking at 40.8% as your top rate. And then you put state taxes on top of that. So you could be looking at close to a 50% or above a 50% rate on long-term capital gains from what had previously been a lower rate. Now, this would not be the first time that capital gain rates and ordinary income rates were the same. Uh, last time that it happened, as I recall, was when we had the actually ERDA, the Economic Recovery Tax Act, Ronald Reagan's tax cut bill, uh, actually, or no, I should say, the Tax Form Act 1986. That that Tax Reform Act, big, probably the, low, the largest things put together under the Reagan administration, actually had capital gain rates at the same rate as ordinary income. It was also true in IRDA, though. I think ERTA also, no, that's right, IRDA took us to 50. It took, uh, t, it took the Tax Reform Act of 86 to get us to a 28% top rate. So capital gains had been taxed at 28% going into that act. They continue to be taxed at 28, but so is everything else. So that part of the theory, having capital gains taxed the same way as earned income, was actually something Ronald Reagan endorsed in the 86 Tax Act. So that's not the unusual part. What is unusual is how high the rate is, 39.6. That is more than a little unusual for capital gains, uh, when we had it before they were the same rate, we had gotten the rates down substantially more, broadened out the base on other things. Now we're going to have those rates much higher at that level. The second big change is, and this is worded in a very difficult way to totally understand, but it tells us we're going to remove step up of basis at death for those who have more than a million dollars worth of appreciation. Now, this has been worded a couple of ways. I've heard people try to explain this. And I go back and look at the document. And I know some of this comes from information, supposedly, insiders were leaking. And some of it comes from various other places. But I think the documents we have to look at ultimately because that's what they'll be measured against. And what the document says is not necessarily what we've heard in a lot of press, at least the emphasis. The press has said, in many cases, I've seen some reports, that we would go to what's essentially a mark-to-market taxation system at death. When you die, all your assets are taken to fair market value. Okay, great. We look at that. We have to do that now, in theory. And then we treat them as sold. Okay? And compute the gains. If your gains are in excess of a million, this is also not totally clear what happens here. If your gains are in excess of a million, then at least some of those gains would, in the rumored aspect, be subjected to tax as you know, as if sold on the final return of the deceit. Now they will t- say maybe you get a million dollar exclusion. The actual text in here just tells us it does again mention. It does mention, quote, eliminating the step up is the line they give here. Does not ever say we'll pay tax at that point, but it says it will be taxed unless given to charity. that will eventually pay tax. That tax will be paid unless it's given to charity. But it never says we're going to put it on the final return. That leads to a second way we could do this. That would theoretically be totally in line with the sentence but would not unveil that tax uh, when someone dies right away. Rather, we could be heading to the AGTRA, Year 10 AGTRA method. If you remember under George W. Bush's uh, tax reform bill that was enacted early in 20, 2001, those who go back that far, which, by the way, I just remembered is 20 years ago. So I understand there are many of you that weren't in practice 20 years ago. But if you go back to that bill, in year 10, in 2010, the estate tax goes away and we convert over. And the theory was that, you know, eventually they want to make this permanent. That we would eliminate step up in basis. Except for about a million three. She'd be able to assign a million three of step up to assets in the estate, but nothing else would get a step up in basis. That particular program, at least if you change it to a million, would seem to be totally in line with what we're talking about here. Now, I will admit there was a huge differential, and I think this is really the key issue here. Under the EGTRA proposal, that only happened when there was never going to be an estate tax imposed on, that, on those assets. The key thing to note with this proposal is, this proposal does not touch the estate tax. Now, you might have thought that was good news from a taxpayer-friendly perspective, right? Hey, great, no estate tax changes. But realistically, we're making a huge change here. Because what's going to happen is without the step up, if your assets are mainly appreciated in the estate and you're subject to estate tax, you will be paying the estate tax on the assets. Plus, you'll be paying on the appreciation in excess of a million, which includes a lot of assets that would come under the $11 million current exclusion level or even the $5 million exclusion level going forward that would happen if TCJ is not extended that those assets that tax we're going to have the capital gain tax as well and that's going to result in a much higher tax on assets passing to the next generation now the law also says that we will protect small businesses family businesses as long as the family continues to run them well if you do the EGTRA method that's still fine right because again You only pay tax if they sell the business, right? As long as they keep the business, there's no tax. That would also theoretically be in line with that statement. So the whole thing becomes interesting in that regard, kind of unique. Third, like kind of, oh, third, carried interest. We would, again, try to make carried interest be taxed as ordinary income. That was something they tried in TCJA. The uh, industry fought back. The, you know, about investment funds and real estate funds fought back. They would now try it again. Of course, this time, even as the letter points out, with these other changes, that may not be that huge a deal anyway. Because, by the way, getting rid of the capital gain rate would also get rid of qualified dividend rate for those above the million. So, okay. Fine, the carried interest reform. And then finally, which I think our clients will have much more impact, is that like-kind exchanges would still be limited to real estate like TCJA, but they would not count once the amount to be deferred exceeded a half million dollars. So you'd have a half million deferral possible on real estate, but once you exceeded that, you couldn't defer it. Now, it'd be interesting to see whether this is some sort of lifetime accumulated deferral. Or if this is a per asset deferral, and then what happens if I sell fractional interest in the asset? I mean, again, as I said, details matter here, and we have none. Please remember, no details are known. They also have a note they're going to apply the net investment income tax consistently for income above $400,000. Fundamentally, what it appears they're getting at there is think about if you have an S corporation where a person materially participates in the activity. The flow through income from the S-Corporation will not be subject to self-employment tax, which means Medicare tax as well. And it would not be part of an income because it was an active conduct of a trader business. So what would happen here is once somebody's income got above $400,000, we would have to pay the 3.8%. We either have to show we paid 3.8% or the uh, standard Medicare tax uh, could be for self-employment tax. Or through the actual Medicare tax on wages, on all of our income above the four hundred thousand dollar level. So minor difference, minor change. Uh, it would affect if you set up an S corporation, get around the NII. That would also have an issue. They also add a provision here that would let the IRS regulate paid preparers. They point out that, and this is going to get to our next issue. That there are a lot of there's a lot of fraud out there. Preparers who put together fraudulent returns. They now think the IRS should regulate the profession and you know be able to clamp down on that. What impact that would have on Circular 230 practitioners that are already under IRS licensing, it's not clear. My guess is uh, the main thing it would do is it would clarify that they could still look at your tax preparation part of your business. Uh, but for those of us who are CPAs, reality is, while well, it may not be the IRS, The state boards generally now recognize the statements on standards for tax services and virtually all of the provisions that are in CERC 230 that govern the preparation of returns have identical provisions in the uh, statements on standards for tax services, which means that for practical purposes, CPAs are subject to that level. Uh, EAs, probably, we haven't really had litigation to see whether the IRS and say create the EA standard and they determine who could be licensed to represent, who's not an attorney or a licensed CPA. My guess is the IRS has a stronger argument they could apply the uh, tax return preparation standards to EAs because, again, we're trying to determine if a group is, you know, should be allowed in in addition to those that are state licensed and since the state licensing areas at least for the CPAs apply these level of standards it would seem they might argue well it's appropriate the IRS does not want to let a bad preparer become an EA but this is a provision that's been fought for long and hard by the NAEA this is a provision i don't believe the AICPA is going to love although i don't want i'm not have no inside knowledge But I I would not be surprised if the AICPA opposed it and the NAEA was in favor of it. Uh, The AICPA's concern is going to probably come from CPAs who believe that having another class of preparers that is, quote, you know, gets a some sort of certified tax preparer title from the IRS will add to confusion over, you know, the cpa versus those titles they'll complain about that from the naea's perspective their concern is pretty much dealing with these storefront operations uh, many of which really don't care i mean not gonna say many but there definitely are preparers out there who are involved in preparing fraudulent returns you see them make it to the tax court You know, you you see people get hung out by that. Somebody just maximizes a refund and just ends up creating a business so they could claim the um, maximum earned income credit, those sorts of issues. And part of the reason why that becomes important is because one of the final things proposed here is to make most of the individual credits that were added or made more valuable in the American Recovery Plan Act, make those permanent or in the case of the basic child tax credit, extend it for, an, for a longer period of time. So that would include the modifications made for 2021s uh, and 2022s premium tax credit would become permanent. So that would be a higher level of credit and subsidy That would inch, that would basically take the position that if you buy your uh, insurance from the exchange you never could pay more than 8.1 percent i believe it is of household income even if you're warren buffett although i think 8.1 percent of his income probably will more than pay for his health insurance but in theory if they want to charge warren more than that there could be a tax credit put in to make up that differential uh also you know certain of the assumptions and you know keep keeping some of your assumptions where We're just under 25%. The poverty level is where we cut off certain limitations. That's also would apparently be part of this. We would make the child tax credit, extend the increased child tax credit, that $3,600, $3,000, $3,600 tax credit through 2025. Um, And we would make permanent the fact that it would be wholly refundable. Child tax credit would always be wholly refundable. That would become permanent. Now, my guess is the 2025, the theory is then that gives them a bargaining chip versus some of the TCJ stuff that we can assume Republicans would want to keep at that time. So I'm sure that's what they look at, that they're going to get this extended permanently in exchange for allowing some benefit like the 199 Cap A to continue past 25. So it's not permanent, but it's set up as bargaining chip that also helps reduce the apparent cost of this uh but then that that's a game congress been paying for playing for years uh you know you using cutoff dates to reduce apparent cost of something everybody knows they plan to make it permanent we would make the greatly increased dependent care credit permanent and the expansion of the earned income tax credits for childless workers would also become permanent again none of this is law yet the devil is in the details and we don't have details So please remember that. What's the proper thing to do at this point? Be aware of this. Your client's going to ask you questions about this. But always warn them. We do not know what's going to happen. And I would, based on my experience, I'm going to say, if it passes, there are likely to be some significant changes. There always have been because they're going to have to get the votes. And that means every Democratic senator especially knows that they have an effective veto. So, you know, if Joe Manchin wants some part of this changed, they're probably going to have to change it to whatever he wants. So, keep your eye on this, you know, and I don't think Manchin's going to be the only problem vote among the 50. So, keep your eye on this program, you know, and try to see what ends up happening in order to piece together those 50 votes. That's what happened with the TCJA, which wasn't this narrow a majority, but was still pretty narrow. And obviously there were changes made up to the last minute, specifically, uh, you know, Marco Rubio's push for the refundable child tax credit. What we got out of the TCJA and the change in how that works and the push by uh, Senator Johnson of. Wisconsin that gave us the crazy rules and I mean, okay, I mean, I understand why he was doing it, but the rules became interesting that you could still get cap CAFE even if you had no employees because it was supposed to be initially for pass-throughs that employed people. You know, that, that was the whole point of all this from early discussion of TCJ, that that was how we're going to give this rate, as well as giving it to some pro, to professionals as long as the income in either case was below certain levels. Uh, Senator Johnson specifically said he wasn't going to vote for it unless his small farmers, uh, you know, his one-man farming operations could get a benefit from it. So they had to do that. Marco was going to do it unless they get this additional child credit money out there. So they had to make changes. So some things are going to change. Just be aware of that as we do it. So, and it may never become law. In fact, some articles I've read this week would suggest, at best, it probably would become law somewhere this fall is when we might finally know what's going to happen. Yes, I plan to do courses on the issue if it comes up keep your eye out for those things but i gotta wait until we actually have the final law and the president signs it and that's usually when i look to start talking to people about doing about setting up course dates i like to send them about a week after that because we need time to digest the law i need time to digest it and we also don't want to try to go early just based off summary sheets because that most often Lead you to problems. So it's probably going to be this fall and it may be the only way Congress works. December is also not off limits. So don't be surprised about that. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of May the 3rd, uh, 2021. We're all, as always, brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society. I do check in on the Connect sites uh, run by Arizona Society of CPAs, New Jersey Society, Minnesota Society, and Illinois and Washington, get all the states in there that I take a look at these days. So if you have any questions and you remember those societies, you can check in there. Otherwise, be sure to visit our website, CurrentFederalTaxDevelopments.com, where we post articles on this. And I will look forward to seeing you next week. Hopefully, we'll have some more developments in the week that are somewhat useful. But we'll talk about whatever we do have here in a week and discuss whatever is happening in the realm of current federal tax developments.